Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Only it can do, and that's change a human heart. We're all in different places with you, I'm sure, this morning, which your word has the ability to reach each person in each circumstance. And that's what we pray your Holy Spirit would do. We ask in your name, amen. Welcome back to our study in 2 Samuel. We have been studying a psalm written by King David. And the last time we were together, these are the last words that he, we heard him say. This is starting back at verse 18. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. This morning we're going to see why David has this confidence. And knowing what we do about the failures in his life, it may surprise you. Look at verse 20 with me. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. A broad place is a place of freedom from bondage and oppression. It would seem that David saw his own liberation in terms that remind us once again of the Exodus. If you remember the account, Moses and Pharaoh had been sparring for round after round. Allow me to give us a quick breakdown of what had occurred. Round one. After being punched with the plagues of blood, frogs, lice, and flies, Pharaoh said to Moses, I'll let you and your people serve the Lord, but you must remain in Egypt. And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then will they not stone us? End of round one. And they both returned to their corners. Round two. Pharaoh says, I'll let you leave the country but just don't go very far. Moses replied, We must do what God commands. Now although Pharaoh offered a compromise to Moses, Moses chose to instead wholeheartedly follow the commands of God. And isn't that the temptation that the enemy still offers us even today? Oh, you can serve the Lord. But just don't go too far. Let's not take this religion thing too far. You don't want people to think you're some kind of fanatic, do you? And therein lies a key to the success of the walk in faith. For the object is not to see how closely we can walk to the world and still call ourselves Christians, but to see how far we can distance ourselves from the world's mentality. It's kind of funny. We all want to be brought into that broad place of blessing that only God can provide. 
But to do so, we must walk life through that narrow gate that is the only one that leads to life. And in a world where the highest attribute is tolerance, we must be narrow-minded in the best sense of the word. Round three. Having been struck with boils and hell, Pharaoh said, You and your men can go as far as you want, but your women and children must stay here. Now, no doubt knowing that if by leaving their families in Egypt, the men would quickly return if they even left at all. And so Pharaoh offered to only let the men go. But Moses would not compromise on this point either, for it wasn't merely a matter of men serving the Lord, but of entire families serving him together. We're taking our families, Moses countered. And once again, both returned to their corners. Round four. Here in the text, following the double punch of locusts and darkness, Pharaoh said, All right, you and your families can go, but your livestock must stay here. No, said Moses, we're going to take our families and our flocks. We're going to take our kids and our cattle. We're going to take, as my father used to say, the whole kit and caboodle. I still don't know what that means. But here's what I want us to get. With Egypt being a picture of the world, Satan seeks to make the same compromises for people today. Stay in the world, he says. Sure, you might have to bake a brick or two, but at least you are familiar with the system. Why take a risk on that which you can't see? Why leave the known for the unknown? Why set your sights on a kingdom that claims to be eternal, yet is presently invisible? And when we choose to listen to God instead of to him, changes, Satan will change his tactic to, all right, go ahead and believe in Jesus, but don't go too far. Don't get too radical. And when we ignore him again, Satan says, all right, be radical in your faith if you want, but don't bring your kids into it. When they're older, let them make their own decision about whether to follow Christ or not. Until then, just leave them in Egypt. Let's not fall into that trap. Egypt has nothing to offer us. There was a reason we decided to leave. The pleasures of sin is like eating cotton candy. It's sweet to the taste, but it never has the ability to satisfy our hunger. Jesus said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And to the degree that we sink our hearts into the soil of this world, we will to that degree remain here as well. Look at verse 21 with me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes." If David's poetic description of God in verses 8 through 16 
sounded strange to our ears. His description of himself in verses 21 through 25 sound absolutely bizarre, but for different reasons. We have no difficulty understanding what he is saying. Our problem is, how can he possibly mean these words? No one reading David's words in their context in the books of Samuel could possibly just take them at face value. We have to ask, how was it possible for an adulterer and a murderer to speak as David has spoken here? It sounds initially, at least, that David is seriously lacking in self-awareness. In other words, he's trying to project an image of himself that doesn't correspond to reality. It's like a picture I saw this week in a high school yearbook. It's a picture of a pretty blonde girl, but for the caption to be included underneath her picture, this is what she wrote. I don't like it when people call me a dumb blonde. It gets on my pet peeves. You'll laugh later. But before we consider how it was possible for David to speak in this way and just what he meant by it, notice how he elaborated by what he meant by his righteousness in verses 22 through 25. His life, he said, followed the ways of the Lord, guided by his rules and his statutes. He even went so far to say that he did not wickedly depart from his God. He was, he said, blameless, not only in his own eyes, but also in the eyes of the Almighty. So what can David possibly mean in this outrageous section that is before us? Was he really saying that he was so good that God owed him the many rescues that he had experienced? Was he claiming, unlike the rest of us, that he really wasn't a sinner? That is what it sounds like. But as so often in the Bible, the puzzling nature of what is said invites us to think more deeply. The first key is simple to understand, but difficult for us to take as seriously as we need to. After David's adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband, the prophet Nathan told David, The Lord has removed your sin. Now, we may still remember David's sin and pin it on him, but amazingly, the Lord does not. Concerning these very acts, David wrote in Psalm 51, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than the snow. But in this psalm, in 2 Samuel, David says, The Lord has rewarded me because I have not violated his ways. What? As I read the life of David, I see lies, adultery, and murder. What then is going on? For in Psalm 38 and 51, we hear David acknowledge what a wretch he is and how he has failed the Lord. But here's what I want us to see. Before the Lord, he admits his sin. But here, in the presence of his enemies... He says he is righteous. This is the way it must be. You see, the closer that I get to God, the more I am in some ways aware of how far I am from him. 
of attitudes that are amiss, and even of actions that are wrong. In the presence of my enemy, however, the accuser of the brethren who accuses me day and night, I can say, the word of God says, I am am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We have to get this. Because you'll never under, be fully used of by the Lord and you'll never understand it until you develop a deep relationship with him and until you learn that you are truly righteous in Christ Jesus. When he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. It was finished indeed. The price for every sin you have ever committed, or get this, ever will commit, has been paid. And having that knowledge frees us to truly live. You see, people who know the goodness and the greatness of God have something worth living for. Such people spend their whole lives learning more and more the immense value of knowing God. Now, there are times when we forget, neglect, or otherwise overlook the treasure that has been given to us. But that never changes the fact that God himself is the one who declares us to be righteous in his sight. I want verse 23 to be the goal of my entire life. It says, For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. That's a pretty good epitaph for a tombstone. Os Guinness in his book, Impossible People, writes this, One of the greatest Christian leaders of the last century was John R. W. Stott, a peerless preacher, Bible teacher, evangelist, author, and friend to many. I knew him over many decades, but I will never forget my last visit to his bedside three weeks before he died. After an unforgettable hour of sharing many memories over many years, I asked him how he would like me to pray for him. Lying weakly on his back and barely able to speak, he answered in a hoarse whisper, Pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. Guinness finishes by writing, Would that such a prayer be the passion of our generation also. Verse 26. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. The Lord never violates his own attributes. God deals with people according to their attitudes and actions towards other people. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. David was merciful to Saul and on at least two occasions spared his life. And so we now see the Lord is also being merciful to David. David was humble and broken before the Lord, while Saul promoted himself and always put himself first. One version translates verse 28 this way, You rescue those who are humble, but your eyes are on the proud to humiliate them. If you remember, when Saul began his reign, he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. But at the end of his life, he fell on his face in a witch's house and then tried to commit suicide on the battlefield. 
This is how God shows himself merciful and blameless with the pure and one who lifts up the humble but casts down the proud. God's grace offers his righteousness and forgiveness not to the self-righteous but for those who realize they are sinners and come to God for his mercy and grace. This is how God gives us his righteousness. 1 Corinthians 10.12 gives us this somber warning. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And isn't that exactly what we have seen in the books of Samuel? David fell on his face in submission, and in the end the Lord lifts him up in honor. Saul lifted himself up in pride and eventually falls on his face in humiliation. That's a lesson this world needs to hear in a big way. There's a behavioral pattern I learned about this week called the fundamental attribution error. It just sounds bad, doesn't it? The definition of that is that people tend to attribute our own failures to external causes, but see other people's failures as evidence of character flaws. For example, if I'm overweight, it's because of genetics and water retention. But if you are overweight, it's because you're a lazy slob with no self-control. And these problems are getting worse. We have seen a broad shift from a culture of humility to the culture of what you might call the big me. People have an extremely inflated view of themselves in this culture in which we live. Did you know that in 1954, only 12% of people considered themselves to be an important person? But by 1989, that number had grown to 80%. And I'm sure it's probably much higher today. From a culture that encouraged people to think humbly about themselves, to a culture that encouraged people to see themselves as the center of the universe. USA Today newspaper interviewed the famous actress Sophia Loren back in 1999. When they asked her about her religious beliefs, this is what she said. I pray. I read the Bible. It's the most beautiful book ever written. I should go to heaven. Otherwise, it's not nice. I haven't done anything wrong, besides lying. My conscience is very clean. My soul is as white as those orchids over there. And I should go straight, straight to heaven. In fact, a survey by the Barna Group bears out that observation. In a poll, only 30% of the people surveyed affirmed the principle that a person cannot earn his or her way into heaven based on their own good works. That means that 7 out of every 10 people surveyed believe salvation is not an issue of grace but on somehow tipping the scales just enough to do more good than bad and thus make it into heaven. But as I've said in the past, God doesn't grade on the curve. With him it's either pass or fail, live or die, heaven or hell. And there is only one way that God will accept, and that is the atoning sacrifice of his son. Now, of course, if I have been converted... Good works will be the logical and practical outworking of my faith. And that will be the proof of my salvation. I don't work to be saved. I work because I am saved. You see, the gospel is more than just fire insurance. It is more than just a way into heaven. 
Once Jesus becomes the Lord and Master of my life, the gospel should impact how I live out every part of my day. It means that I do the good works that God prepared for me in advance to do out of gratitude for what he has done for me. Verse 27 tells us, With the pure you will show yourself pure, and with the devious you will show yourself shrewd. The first part of that is pretty obvious. But you know what the last part means? Simply, God has a custom-made board for every behind. Case in point. In Genesis, we learn of a man named Jacob. Now, Jacob had no problem lying to his father if it suited him. If you remember, he dressed up like Chewbacca and put some of his brother's clone on so he would smell like him. So now he's all hairy and wearing that fine perfume, Midnight at the Cow Pasture. And sure enough, it works. He fools his father Isaac, who gives him the blessing of the firstborn. So now he goes away, and he ends up with a guy now over him named Laban. Now this guy has his doctorate in deceit. This is the custom-made board I mentioned earlier. And so Laban gets Jacob to work seven years for him for the hand of his daughter Rachel. But on the honeymoon night, he gets Jacob a little drunk, and he does the old switcheroo and substitutes Leah for Rachel. Now follow me here. Jacob is deceived in the dark just like he deceived his blind father. Does that sound familiar? Just like his father, Jacob could taste, touch, and hear, but he couldn't see because it was dark, and so he got the wrong woman. And so he is cheated just like he cheated his father, and now has to work seven more years for the hand of Rachel. But the best part of the story is where it says, but in the morning, behold, it was Leah. That's always how it is with sin. You think you win, but you wake up and you look over at what's lying next to you, and, well, we'll just leave it at that. Incidentally, also, did God repay Laban for this? Yes, he did. Jacob cleaned him out when he was leaving. The point is, in both cases, with the twisted, you will show yourself twisted. The last thing I want us to see from these verses is that God forgave David's sin. But it was because of God's commitment to David and not because of any commitment that David had to God. David was able to pray in Psalm 51 because of the Lord's steadfast love and abundant mercy that was shown him. This is what he delighted in me back in verse 20 ultimately means. We see that when the Lord gets involved, it's not the high and the mighty, it's not the haughty ones, it's not the ones who have reasons to be arrogant who will be the winners. The Lord saves people who are the ones who realize that they need saving. Verse 29, please. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. Listen to the commentary of C. H. Spurgeon on verse 29. He writes, It is worth noting how plants and trees turn to the light, and how bleached vegetation becomes if it be shut up in the darkness. The utter dark is dreadful to men. It may even be felt, so does it press upon the mind. What then can be said if there be light, and yet we refuse it? He must have ill work on hand who loves the darkness. 
Only bats and owls and unclean and ravenous things are fond of the night. He finishes by saying, Children of light walk in the light and reflect the light. I love verse 29 where David proclaims that the Lord is his lamp that dispels the darkness. Basically he's saying, I can see my way, Lord. I can get over the hurdles because you are the lamp that gives me that direction. The German comedian Carl Valentin would walk on a stage where everything was dark, except for a small area under a street lamp. And he would begin to look for something on the ground. Just then a policeman would come along and he would ask him what he was looking for. Valentin would then reply that he was trying to find a key. So the two of them would search together. Unable to find it, the policeman asked, Are you sure you lost it here? Oh no, said Valentin, and he pointed to a darkened corner. I think I lost it over there. The policeman said, then why are we looking here? Valentin would reply, because the light is better here. Carl Valentin may not seem to be very funny to us today. You're probably thinking, that reminds me of somebody else in this church who tries to be funny, but really isn't. But I think we should give Pastor John a break, because he does try really hard. But anyway, the point Valentin made was a good one. Without the light, all you can really do is grope around in the darkness. As the scriptures say in Isaiah 59.10, We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at the midday as in the twilight. Or in the words of that old Don Francisco song, Blinded by the rulers of the darkness, Like eyeless men we grope along the wall. And were it not for Jesus and his mercy... The only question left us would be how and when we'd fall. As we close, the question you may be thinking is, okay, I'll admit I'm in the dark, and I may be even involved in some dark things. I want God to be my light. How does that actually work? How do we enlighten the paths in our lives in a world that is daily growing darker? We feed upon his word. It is impossible to overstate the importance of this. If you are tired of the dark, study and obey the Bible. Now, if you are a Christian whose faith is weak, guess what the answer to that is? Romans 10:17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, how does that work in a practical sense? You want to get to the point where you have a working knowledge of the scripture. And by that I mean... You have read and meditated upon it to the point that whenever you are faced with any situation, the Holy Spirit will bring a verse to your mind concerning that. And that's kind of the easy part. The harder part is once he has done that, we are now under the obligation to obey what we know. And don't think you can't do this. If you are unsure where to start, just read the Gospel of John and the Book of Romans over and over. If those are the only two books in the Bible, we could spend our whole lives just trying to live up to the truth of those standards. If you don't have a good Bible, see me, and the church will buy you one. Why am I stressing this? Because in the words of Psalm 119.130, the entrance of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And in this dark world, Light and understanding are two things we desperately need. 
And so let's avail ourselves of everything the Lord has given us to walk the path that he has put before us. And Lord, I do pray that. I pray that your word will become precious to everyone in here. And like newborn babes, Lord, we would crave that spiritual milk. The same way we get hungry in the physical sense and do whatever we have to do to eat. I pray you would give us that same kind of spiritual hunger and even more. Let us not be satisfied feeding on the garbage that this world gives us. But let us be faithful to you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, I ask Elder Haynes to come up and Roy to come up and do music for us. We'll be taking our uh, communion. I pray that you would take it, take it back to your seat and hold it, and we will take it together.